I Don't Got This, Adventures in Schizophrenia and Alcoholism, by Emily Journey, published by Sunny Slope Press. Prologue, SWAT. In November 2014, my mom, Clotine Tubbs, set fire to her neighbor's front door in the hallway of the senior apartment complex where she lived alone. She was 74. I had just started my own business that was shakily gaining steam. I was in the middle of a disintegrating marriage that would end in my third divorce. I'd had three spinal surgeries in the past six years, and I'd had quit drinking after five years of getting drunk almost every day. I was 44. Clotine's apartment was in Westerville, a suburb of Columbus, Ohio. She set fire to the door in November. More precisely, she set fire to a very flammable, festive straw scarecrow hanging on the door, one of those decorations you might pick up in a drugstore when you went to get deodorant or toilet paper or something. She called me the next day to tell me the police had come. She gave me a number and I called the detective assigned to her case. We agreed I'd bring her in the next day to get her mugshot and fingerprints taken. When we were down at the station, the detective let me know that because my mother's charge involved arson, he would have to go downtown to the county prosecutor's office and present the report in person. Okay, I said. I was hustling to get her a psychiatric evaluation. I couldn't really think beyond the next few days, even though I knew arson was a felony. At the time, Clotine was a kindly-looking white lady who'd looked older than her 74 years. And maybe that's why he told us we were free to go once she'd been booked, without any further instructions about where she needed to go next or what she needed to do. I don't know. The next time I heard from the police was a few days later when an eight-man SWAT team in full tactical gear showed up at Clotine's door to haul her in. She'd been charged with a first-degree felony, but she wasn't at home. Clotine had checked herself into the psychiatric ward of a local hospital on the basis of the evaluation I had organized a few days earlier. As we sat in the psychiatrist's office on the day she was hospitalized, the doctor asked Clotine a series of questions, then turned to me and said, I'm going to recommend immediate hospitalization. She set a fire and it's clear she's a danger to others. For the first time in my life, I was hearing from a licensed psychiatrist that my mother had a mental illness so severe that she needed medical attention. Screw it. Not just medical attention. She needed round-the-clock hospital care. I had lived my entire life with a mother who was sick but undiagnosed and untreated. I had begun to suspect she had schizophrenia nearly 20 years earlier when I was finishing my master's degree in social work. When I was in my late 20s, I started testing the words, my mom has schizophrenia, out loud. But even when I said it to someone, I would hear some version of the question, how do you know? Has she seen a doctor? What kind of medication is she taking? Oh, she doesn't take medication? Where does she live? On her own? Not in a facility? You know, for those kinds of people. Or I might get nothing more than a questioning look, especially from people who knew her. After all, they saw her as a functioning person. 
a person who'd raised me on her own as a single mother, a person who held down jobs and lived in an apartment. Their pre-existing image of a schizophrenic as an actively psychotic homeless man didn't fit. Technically, once the doctor recommended hospitalization, Clotine was the one who had to check herself in. I couldn't commit her because she wasn't deemed an imminent violent threat, but she put up precious little resistance to admitting herself to the hospital. An anticlimactic end, really, to decades of avoiding doctors and diagnoses and getting any help. She did worry aloud that she would miss the appointment she'd made with the cable guy. Don't worry, I told her. I'll let the cable guy in. That's how it happened that on a cold gray day in November, about 10 days after setting the fire, Clotine was hospitalized for a psychotic break, and I was headed to her new apartment. Her move to a new senior living apartment complex a few miles from where she'd set the fire had already been planned, and the movers had transferred her belongings just a couple of days earlier. I unlocked the door and stepped inside. The movers had unpacked most of her meager possessions, although she had five or six boxes left to sort through. Her furniture was arranged in the living room, her desk hugging the wall on one side of the room, a small table on the other side, the television, and her couch across from it. As soon as I sat down, I heard a banging knock at the door. I opened it to see an officer leaning against the door jamb, his face inches from mine. A second officer stood just to his left. Along with them, six other SWAT team cops lined the walls of the hallway. They were all wearing black bulletproof vests, black bulletproof helmets, and black rifles slung across their shoulders. The building manager also showed up. He was deaf, so along with him came his sign language interpreter. Altogether, I was staring at 10 people when I opened the door. The officer nearest to my face barked at me, do you own a green Volkswagen Passat? Just as the second officer barked, are you Clotine Tubbs? Confused, I said no. Didn't they have a physical description of Clotine? She was 30 years older than me, three inches shorter, and maybe 80 pounds heavier. She had very short graying hair while I had shoulder length auburn hair. But before I could process my confusion over how they could confuse me with my mother, the two officers in front pushed their heads into the doorway, alongside them the building manager and his interpreter. The sign language interpreter began to sign and speak the words to the building manager, echoing the aggression in the faces of the SWAT team cops. I didn't immediately realize she was there to interpret. I shifted into a cool, calm character. I'd had to find this mode so many times throughout my life to handle one crazy situation after another. I slipped into it like a second skin. Clotine's my mom. I'm her daughter. I'm here waiting for the cable company, I said in a low-pitched, confident voice. Where is she? One of them said, and the sign language interpreter echoed his angry bark with her gestures. She too said, where is she? She's at Dublin Springs Hospital, I said. Then I turned to the interpreter and said it again. Why is she in the hospital? Asked the officer, leaning against the door jamb. She has schizophrenia and she's getting treatment, I said. Then the interpreter repeated the question. Why is she in the hospital? She has schizophrenia and she's getting treatment, I repeated to the interpreter. She turned and shot me a look of exasperation. It registered with me that she hadn't been talking to me at all. 
She was totally focused on her job of interpretation, and I could stop answering the same question twice. We have a warrant for her arrest, the officer in front of me said. Okay, I said. As they asked me more questions, the building manager was simultaneously asking me, what happened? Why are these people here for your mom? His sign language interpreter was peppering in his questions while they both signed furiously, adding to the general sense of commotion. Well, she was paranoid, I explained. She's getting treatment in the hospital. She's stable now, I added, suddenly realizing I should try to cover for Clotine to minimize the possibility that she would lose her new apartment. She's getting medication. Is she going to do it again? The manager asked. No, no, no. This was a breakdown. She wasn't taking her medication, I said, leaving out the fact that she wasn't taking her medication because up until three days before, she hadn't had a psychiatrist since the mid-1960s. He didn't have to know that part. The SWAT team reinserted themselves. We're going to the hospital to pick her up, one of them said accusingly, as though I might be hiding something. Okay, I said. What could I be hiding, as if I was going to do anything to stop a SWAT team wearing their rifles like beauty pageant sashes across their chests? Everyone filed out and the door shut. I took a breath, dug out my cell phone, and called the hospital. Hello? Hi, I said. I know you're not able to give out any patient information, but my mom was just admitted a couple of days ago. I'm not able to confirm or deny that anyone is a patient here, ma'am, the receptionist said. Our policy is to protect patient privacy, she added, warily preempting any argument. Right, I know, I said, plunging ahead. But I need to let you know... There's an eight-man SWAT team on their way to you to pick her up. Okay, ma'am, she said in her world-weary voice. She sounded used to all sorts of people showing up at the front desk, and I was having trouble communicating why this time might be different. The beauty pageant sash rifles, the helmets, the barking questions. I need you to take down my name and number and give them to your director as soon as we hang up, I said, my voice clear and steady a fighter pilot radioing troops on the ground because she is going to want to call me. I know you can't confirm or deny anything, but have her call me. I'm sitting right by my phone. The drive from my mother's apartment building to the hospital had taken me 35 minutes the last time I'd done it. I got a call in 15. They're here. Part 1. Chapter 1. Things my mother thought were happening, 1970 to 2014. Her roommate was opening her mail. Every roommate was opening her mail. Her neighbors had somehow gotten a key to her apartment and were letting themselves in to hack into her email when she wasn't home. Her coworkers used her computer when she wasn't around and left stuff there to get her in trouble. Her next door neighbor was running a prostitution ring. Her granddaughters were somehow roped into the prostitution ring. The cops were her neighbor's biggest clients. They confirmed this suspicion when they stopped coming to her apartment complex after the second time she'd called them. She was related to just about everyone she met, including the hostess delivery truck driver that her son John happened to park next to when he took her to the dentist one day, and she ran up to the driver to tell him so. She met Osama bin Laden in a nursing home where she worked. He had tall man's syndrome, so when he wore a turban on his head, it grazed the ceiling. 
She had met several famous criminals. She had dated Richard Speck before I was born. Richard Speck, the man who, according to his Wikipedia page, systematically raped one and tortured and murdered eight student nurses from South Chicago Community Hospital on the night of July 13th into the early morning hours of July 14th, 1966. They didn't have Wikipedia back then. A woman in our church was trying to seduce the pastor. So was a second woman who stuck her ass in the air to get the pastor's attention, and she ran up to the women to tell them so. When I was 12 years old and preparing for my baptism at our church, I was trying to get raped or trying to have sex. On the third floor at one end of her apartment building, she could hear conversations on the first floor at the other end of the building. The walls are thin, she'd say by way of explanation. It didn't matter that that was impossible. Things that I thought were normal, 1970 to 1979. My mother told me that she had shown up at the airport one day, walked up to a counter, and told the agent how much money she had and that she wanted a ticket to someplace warm. The agent suggested Phoenix. When I was an adult, I found out that this story was true, but that she had left out the fact that she had given birth and placed a baby, my half-sister Michelle, up for adoption two weeks before she had made that trip to the airport. Five months later, she was pregnant with me. When I was four, Clotine left me with a family in our apartment complex who looked after me. They had a mom and a dad, which I know now was unusual among the families who lived in our complex. And they had two boys, four and 12. The older boy regularly egged the younger one on until he beat me up. Whenever the parents happened to see us, they laughed. I looked for a hiding place in every place we ever lived in case it was ever broken into while I was home alone a place I could go where the intruders wouldn't be able to find me. People jiggled our front doorknob regularly. Once I opened the front door on a group of teenagers that were trying to pick the lock, they ran away. When I was growing up, my hiding place was usually under the kitchen sink. We never had anything under there when I was a kid, so I could fit. I used to practice tucking myself into the cabinet, staying silent in the dark. Emily? My mom would call and I'd come rolling out from beneath the sink. When I got too big for the sink, I shifted my hiding place to disguised arrangements of dirty laundry in a closet. I have a hiding place in my house now, but I'm not going to write it here. Then it wouldn't be hidden. In Phoenix in the 1970s, I liked to pick up half-smoked cigarettes off the ground in the parking lot, take them back to the apartment, light them on the stove, and try to smoke them. I played in the back of unlocked cars in the parking lot of the apartment complexes where we lived. I was good about not stealing the change I found. I didn't go to the dentist until I was 15. At my first visit, the dentist didn't believe I'd never been to a dentist before. I think he became convinced after he found 16 cavities. Even though I got decent grades, I had to forge my mom's signature on my report card because she couldn't be bothered to take a look. Other kids got so stressed out whenever report cards came out. My mother never cared. Why did their parents care so much? One summer day when I was about five years old, Clotine left me at a daycare center somewhere in Phoenix, and she didn't come back for me. I played all day. Then one by one, the other kids went home. I watched as their parents came to get them, looking up at the door every time it opened. 
Moms came in mostly, a few smiling, many tired and stern. They collected their children and walked them out hand in hand. And then it was just me and a couple of the daycare workers who stayed with me. They turned out the lights on the daycare center and walked me into the main office. They had a cot in there. I heard them talking about how they could not get a hold of my mother. She wasn't answering the phone number she gave them. They kept asking me if I knew when my mom was going to come pick me up. I don't know, I said. Then I asked, can I live with you? Then we could just go home now. We wouldn't have to wait for my mom. One of the women furrowed her brow. Let's just see if we can find her, she answered. Eventually, Clotine arrived. It was dark in the office and felt very late. I had fallen asleep on the cot. I didn't see a confrontation, but I do know that I never went back there. In any case, even if she hadn't turned up hours late to pick me up, I probably wouldn't have been back very much. Clotine usually couldn't afford to pay for childcare. She did say she thought that the daycare was open 24 hours a day. She was constantly misinterpreting the world around her, and this daycare was no exception. She needed a daycare with extended hours, so her brain told her she had found one. Let's go, she said, as I got my shoes on and stumbled outside with her. I felt a tinge of disappointment. Her showing up ruined the plan I'd cooked up to be adopted by a nice family. None of the other parents forgot that the daycare wasn't 24 hours. None of the other parents were like this. Why was she? We headed outside where it was dusk. Normally, we took the bus, but this evening she picked me up in a white van. Where did she get the white van? As a five-year-old, I didn't wonder about it, but I do now. I really don't know. It's not likely that she even had a driver's license. She probably didn't even have the title. Odds are she handed over a wad of cash from her tax refund in exchange for the keys, and that was that. I don't remember what happened to this particular white van, but I do remember her abandoning a different car later on in my childhood. She couldn't afford to put gas in it, so she parked it and walked away. This white van was the kind a painter or a plumber would have, so it only had one seat, the driver's seat. The rest was an empty, windowless cavern with scratches all over the interior white paint. I climbed in and tried to settle myself on the corrugated metal floor right behind my mom's seat. We pulled out of the daycare parking lot. The waves in the metal floor made it impossible to find a position I could sit in. So I stood up and started walking around in the back. Sit down, Clotine shouted as we picked up speed. I pretended to be a monkey finding hand and footholds as the force of the van picking up speed began to push me back away from the driver's seat. Then the doors in the back of the van flew open. The light of a bright street lamp flooded into the back of the dark van. As I tumbled toward the open doors, I got a glimpse of the blacktop. It looked liquid, a rapid black river with a steady bright yellow line that I could follow to a place far away from here. Somewhere. Anywhere else. I can just jump out, I thought, before my scrawny five-year-old hand gripped a ridge in the van wall to steady myself. Clotine pulled to the side of the road. I watched her shut the doors. The back of the windowless van instantly went dark. We continued on, but after a few more minutes, a cop pulled Clotine over. Expired tags. When my own daughters were little, we would go to the public library almost every day. 
I was in my early 20s when I had them, and we were always broke. The library was a great place to hang out. Besides books and puzzles, they also had story time and heat in the winter. Phoenix was hot and dry and dusty year-round. As a kid, I walked the city. We didn't have a car, so we walked whenever the bus failed to show up. Even when the bus did show up, we'd often find ourselves walking long distances. I walked our neighborhood too, a perfectly flat rectangle that included the Christown shopping mall, where I occasionally ended up barefoot. Clotine would turn me loose when I was bored. One day she suggested I walk to the library, which hugged the south corner of the mall. It was the Yucca branch of the Phoenix Public Library. Nobody had ever told me how the library worked. The building had a facade covered in massive stones, and as I walked in, I was hit with a wall of quiet, solemn as a church. Brown chairs and tables, brown shelves, brown carpet. I hesitated just on the other side of the front door. Even though at the time I didn't know what a country club was, I still felt like someone who sneaks into one and pretends to be a member. I took a few steps forward, and no one said anything. Since Clotine had said it would be fine, I ventured in. Because the children's books were kept in the back, I didn't even know the library had any. So I just paged through books that were left out on the big wooden tables in an open space near the stacks. After a half hour or so, I abandoned the books and left. But I came back over and over. One day, as I was ferrying a book to the table, a librarian came up to me and asked, would you like to take that book home? I nodded, not sure if I had given the right answer. Was I in trouble? You'll need a library card, do you have one? No, I said, still not letting on that she was providing me with brand new information. I don't have any money, I said, suspicious. Oh no, they're free. They're free if you want one. Okay, I want one, I said. Well, let's get you one, she said. She walked me to the circulation desk and made a library card for me. Then she showed me where the children's section was so I could find more books I might be interested in reading. She showed me Harold the Purple Crayon, and she revealed to me that I could check the books out and take them home. I just had to remember to bring them back. Really, I asked, I can take these books home? Yes, of course, she smiled. I lugged my books home and told Clotine, hey mom, I got these at the library but I can't keep them. I have to take them back. Over the following weeks, the same librarian took the time to show me the card catalog, and she often walked me back to the children's book section to help me find new books. I think you should read this book, she said, thumbing out Pippi Longstocking by Astrid Lindgren. You're going to like it. The Pippi Longstocking series became my favorite. A girl with red hair like me, incredibly strong. She looked after herself lived alone in a big, broken-down villa, and never went to school. She always had enough money, pure gold pieces that she hid in a closet in her house, and food was never an issue. Her father was lost at sea, but she would see him again one day. Mom, dead. Pippi gave me hope. The life of Pippi Longstocking seemed much more achievable to me than the family lives I saw advertised on TV. I didn't have superhuman strength like Pippi, but I had smarts like her. She outwitted cops and thieves, grown-ups and other kids, just like I often had to. 
It just seemed like her ability to outwit them always had a happier ending. As a seven-year-old, Pippi was an inspiration for me. But when I look back, I see Clotine resembled Pippi Longstocking much more than I did. Like Pippi, her life operated according to its own self-contained logic, a logic that was always shifting, but also always made perfect sense to no one else but her. Pippi was in the garden, watering the few flowers still in bloom with an old rusty watering can. As it was raining cats and dogs that day, Tommy told Pippi her watering seemed hardly necessary. Yes, that's what you say, said Pippi grudgingly. But I've lain awake all night thinking what fun it was going to be to get up and water, and I'm not going to let a little rain stand in my way. In these first few years of my life, I felt confused a lot. But I didn't feel abnormal because Clotine was my gauge for what was normal. I lived on the inside of our life, on the inside of our problems. Outside perspective hadn't arrived yet. Even when I had inklings that something was weird or I was just curious, I didn't know the why to most of it, even after I asked and Clotine answered me. Like when we moved. Sometimes we moved because we couldn't pay rent. Sometimes we moved because of Clotine's paranoid delusions. Sometimes we just moved because we moved. Asking Clotine why we were moving was very much like asking Pippi Longstocking why she was watering her plants in the rain. I've lain awake all night thinking what fun it was going to be, and I'm not going to let a little rain stand in my way. Clotine minimized some delusions. Others she never voiced, or maybe she didn't think she had to. I didn't experience her delusions as hallucinations because I wasn't inside her head. Instead, her delusions were more like a worldview. Just as I believe normal people can see the things that I see and hear the things I hear, Clotine believed that the things she saw and heard were a shared reality that everyone else must be experiencing too. When we lived in Phoenix, I didn't have anyone to compare notes with. She told me I was allergic to milk, so I never drank it. She also believed she was allergic to vegetables, so we never ate any. We had some canned green peas around, which she would boil to mush. In the 70s in Phoenix, Clotine got jobs as a waitress mostly. In those days, she went by Cleo, not Clo or Clotine. In Phoenix, it was Cleo. Then in Columbus, her name somehow switched to Chloe, which eventually shortened to Clo. Clotine's original birth certificate listed no first name. It was left blank. Chloe's parents' names were listed, as was Journey, their last name, and her date of birth. But they hadn't named her or for some reason hadn't bothered to fill out the birth certificate when she was born in 1940. When she finally sent in the application to have her birth certificate corrected in the early 1980s, she showed it to me. It matched up with the story she had always told me. Oh yeah, Clotine would say, my parents just called me Honeybun. My kindergarten teacher told me that I had to have a name and to go to the back of the room until I decided what my name was. So you picked Clotine, I asked. Yeah, I looked through the science books in the back of the room, and I like the words, so I came up with the name Clotine, like chlorophyll. That was her story, no name but the name she gave to herself. 
Back in Phoenix, Cleo worked places that you might compare to Mel's Diner from the TV show Alice. But without the TV sheen and the wisecracking Kiss My Grits flow, and without the common sense or good judgment of Alice herself. If Clotine was like anyone on that show, she was like Vera, trying to refill the straw dispenser at the counter, but instead ripping open a box of straws so that they flew above her head like confetti. In fact, she did have one very Vera moment that she told me about once. She was working during a dinnertime rush with chaos in the kitchen. Drain the spaghetti, one of the cooks barked at her. She'd never used a colander before, so she threw the spaghetti into the sink. Schizophrenia made her scattered. Disorganized thinking has been argued by some to be the single most important feature of schizophrenia, according to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 4th edition, where I read about it for the first time decades later when I was in graduate school. Her disorganized thinking often put us in precarious straits. Once in a while, we'd get stranded far from any bus stop and have to flag down a stranger and ask for a ride. And we moved in with strangers when we had nowhere else to go. She was rarely fired, but often she'd quit with no plan. Throughout her working life and well into my adulthood, she never found another job before quitting the one she had because the quitting didn't have much to do with whether or not she liked the job. In fact, she usually quit as soon as she found a place where the staff accepted her strangeness and found a way to work with it or around it. Her illness sabotaged her then, causing paranoia that got more and more intense until she would explode at a fellow waitress, a customer, or her boss. Then she would walk off the job, leaving bewildered coworkers in her wake who never saw it coming. It's probably best to think of Clotine as Pippi Longstocking, but all grown up, with very long black hair hanging loose down her back and an untreated psychiatric illness. Then you have a closer approximation of my mother than any normal mom I can think of. When I was that age in Phoenix, six, seven, eight years old, I thought the reason the way things were the way they were was because I didn't have a dad. The reason we were always broke the reason I was home alone while my mom was out working, the reason we didn't have enough food, the reason life felt stressful and confusing, and most of all, unfair. All because I didn't have a dad. Most of all, life felt unfair. I knew I was being cheated. When I was growing up, lots of kids lived with only their mom like I did, but few of them had no contact with their dads whatsoever. For most of them, dad was someone they saw a couple of times a year or every other weekend. Crucially, he was someone who gave mom money. That wasn't the case for me. I don't know who my biological father is. The story Clotine told me was that he was her boyfriend. He set her up in an apartment, and when she got pregnant, he disappeared. She also told me that she ran into him in the grocery store once when I was a baby. I was in the cart, and she told him I was his, and he told her that that was impossible. She told me that story once when I was little. After that conversation, my dad ceased to exist. His non-existence was a fact, the way things had always been. I accepted it without question, the same way we hitchhiked and accepted strangers when the bus never came. If I thought about him at all, 
I lumped it in not knowing who he was with other oddities about my mother, like how somehow people were always getting into her mail and reading it, even though it was sealed when she got it from the mailbox. Or how Loretta Lynn was my mother's first cousin and not just a famous person we just happened to be watching on TV. Since all of her weirdness sat tangled together in my mind, the solution got tangled up too. If life was like this because I didn't have a dad, then the solution must be that I needed to get a dad. So I didn't think my biological dad would come back, but I wished for a dad all the time as a little girl. I wished for a dad so I could be more like other kids. I wished for a dad so that we could have enough money and enough food to eat. I wished for a dad so I could be safe from moving all the time and from hiding under the sink and from staying home alone. I'm not sure how to describe the level of longing and eventual grief I experienced as time went by. By the time I was 12, I decided that I never needed a dad. I came to that conclusion as a matter of emotional survival. But well before then, when we were still living in Phoenix, I still hoped for a dad. One morning I woke up in our apartment and a man was sleeping on the couch in the living room. I wasn't particularly surprised. It wasn't the first time that I woke up to find someone I had never met living with us. I never witnessed Clotine actually inviting someone to live with us, so I can't describe what those conversations were like. But it always felt sudden to me. Every time it happened, I discovered it the same way. I'd go to bed living with Clotine and wake up living with Clotine and someone else. Likely, Clotine met these strays at the diners where she worked. Even if I had witnessed the conversations, I doubt they would make these invitations or their acceptance seem more reasonable. Those people who were agreeing to live with her must not have had many or any other options. A year or so before I woke up to the man on our couch, I woke up to Joan living with us. When Joan moved in, we lived in a one-bedroom apartment facing the pool in a complex in Phoenix. We had lived there a few months, and I knew the complex well. I had already gone down all the alleys and climbed into all the tiny backyards by the time Joan arrived. I had even scrambled up onto the roof of our building. I'd collected aluminum cans and half-smoked cigarettes in the parking lot. I'd played in the back seats of people's cars. One morning I woke up and Joan was there. Clotine and Joan seemed to have come to an arrangement that Joan could live with us in exchange for babysitting me, or at least keeping an eye on me. Joan didn't play with me and she didn't always feed me, but she was there in case I broke a leg or went missing for too long. Joan smoked cigarette after cigarette in our apartment so the ashtrays were always full to the brim. She regularly wore a mid-70s muumuu, the shapeless house attire of the day. Joan left a few months later after Clotine threw an explosive, hostile, screaming fit. It was a pattern I saw throughout my life. People would get comfortable with her eccentricities, but that wasn't enough for her illness. In fact, their getting used to her seemed to stoke her paranoia. I learned to fear her anger by watching her unleash it on others. I learned somehow to get out of the path, first physically, and then in some other way, so I could avoid the tsunami of her anger. I got better and better at anticipating it over the years because like a tsunami, when you spot the wave, it's already too late to get out of the way. 
I knew how to find indicators that she was likely to go off well before anyone else could tell. Even after years of practice, I didn't always spot it in time. Once, when I was about 12, I was playing with friends in their yard, but she couldn't find me. When she did finally find me, she discovered that I was having fun horseplaying and rolling around with the other kids on a blanket in the backyard. She dragged me away and beat the shit out of me on a busy street. That was how her anger always felt, as out of the blue as the person who had come to live with us. Eventually, Clotine's paranoid delusions would manifest as a blind rage that submerged and decimated everything in its path. Once people started to trust her, that was when her anger wrecked it all. She would lose control mid-conversation, knock the wind out of the other person with a flood of anger when they were relatively relaxed. If there was any warning at all, it was only visible to me as someone who spent a lot of time with her. She might purse her lips or let out a loud sigh or start to fidget. But before the target or anyone else had time to register those subtle signs, she was in their face, screaming and waving her hands around. Joan, like many others, never saw it coming. You have 24 hours to pack your things and get out of here. Her voice was loud and low-pitched, like it was coming from a place deep inside. What? Why? You know why. Stay out of my mail. Don't let me find you here tomorrow or I'm calling the cops, Clotine screamed, her bulbous nose bright red. Joan argued that she hadn't touched Clotine's mail, but the denial just confirmed Clotine's suspicions. I can't believe this, Joan said. If you spent more time looking for a job and less time with your finger up your nose, maybe you wouldn't have to go through my mail, Clotine continued, her logic clear as day to no one but her. Fine, Joan said, exasperated and trembling. Joan was gone the next morning. So by the time I woke up to this man sleeping on our couch, I was not, as I said, particularly surprised to see him. He was thin and balding, wearing a plaid work shirt and gray slacks. I walked into the middle of the living room, which had no other furniture other than the couch he was lying on. Who are you, I asked. I'm Billy, he said, turning over so that he faced the ceiling, his fingers fumbling a cigarette and a matchbook out of his shirt pocket. Hi, I'm Emily. Yeah, he said, I'm a friend of your mom's. How do you meet my mom? We just met, he said, his hand making a kind of floating ribbon gesture toward the front door, the lit cigarette pinched between his fingers. Oh, I said, are you gonna stay? I love your mom, he said. I'm gonna marry her if she'll let me. I can't say I was totally shocked by this announcement either although I was a little more surprised by it than by finding him on our couch, and I was curious. Does that mean you're going to be my dad, I asked. Do you want a dad? Clotine came out of the bathroom and into the kitchen. She looked into the living room and said, he's not my boyfriend. Addressing Billy, she said, stop it. When I asked her later, she said, no, we are not getting married. He hung around for a few weeks, always sleeping on the couch never in my mom's room, which was where I slept. Like Joan, he smoked, but unlike Joan, he punctuated his sentences with wild hand gestures, waving his cigarette around precariously. He almost burned me several times until he finally did burn me once, 
when the three of us were walking from the parking lot to the grocery store. He got me right above the belly button. Psst. Clotine was furious. I was screaming, and he blamed me for getting too close. Not long after that, my mom told me he wasn't going to come around anymore. As Clotine had said, Billy wasn't going to marry her. That meant he wasn't going to be my dad. I was disappointed, forlorn even. He wasn't going to buy us a car like he said he would, or move us into a house, or even take me to the zoo, a place I had always wanted to go. I had heard the other kids at school talk about the zoo for years and was delighted when he promised we'd go. It was finally going to be my turn. I felt stranded. Even though I had enough sense to know that Billy might not be all he was cracked up to be, I hoped that he would do all of those things he had promised. I hoped that he would change my life, and now I knew he wouldn't. As a goodbye, he took me bowling. Then we went to Taco Bell, and he told me to get whatever I wanted from the menu, which I did. Then he didn't come around anymore. Thinking about it over 40 years later, I can't imagine why he didn't just disappear. Why did he go through the routine of taking me bowling and then to Taco Bell? It added a sense of finality that didn't befit his few-week-old relationship with Clotine. More than that, it was just so responsible of him. Billy, a homeless weirdo who slept on a stranger's couch and then claimed he was going to marry her, didn't leave the stranger's daughter wondering about what had happened. In that very narrow and bizarre and stunted way, Billy did more for me than any other father figure in my childhood. He faced me. He felt like he owed me the truth. No, I won't be visiting again. We were always the poorest people I knew year after year. No matter how poor our neighbors were, we were poorer. Clotine never filed for unemployment benefits when she was eligible, and she refused to apply for public assistance because she was paranoid that if she ever got in the system, they'd remove me from her home. That was her greatest fear. As I look back now, I have to admit her paranoia about them taking you away was not the result of a delusion, at least not totally. Clotine had been hospitalized in 1964, six years before I was born, for her mental illness. She'd been released from Central Ohio Psychiatric Hospital in 1965 as part of deinstitutionalization, a process set into motion by the Community Mental Health Act of 1963. She didn't want to go back to be committed, and she worried that if she got on the radar of public assistance, she'd have to go back and I'd be separated from her. So if she wasn't working, which was often, we had absolutely no money. That meant that I often found myself tagging along with friends after school and then saying, ask your mom if I can stay for dinner. I would sometimes ask to sleep over too. We never had any fresh fruits or fresh vegetables. We had boxed mac and cheese, but no butter or milk to mix into it. We had bare cupboards and only enough food in the fridge to fill one shelf, if that. Even now, her cupboards and fridge look like this, not because she doesn't have enough money to buy food, just because. Sometimes I offer to take her out, wherever she wants. She always chooses McDonald's, where she'll order a filet of fish, hold the cheese and tartar sauce. 
A mix of her illness and her pride also combined to form a belief in her that we didn't actually need any help. She felt like there were other people who really needed help, and that she wasn't one of those people, even though we were occasionally homeless and regularly had nothing to eat. It wasn't that she wasn't smart. She was highly intelligent, but with incredibly poor judgment. Clotine had a combination of shame about accepting help, mistrust of anyone who might be poking around into her life asking questions, and also the disorganization that came with her severe, untreated mental illness. I would see flashes of that toxic combo every once in a while. Once when I was eight or nine, I remember the two of us helping a friend and her mom unload a trunk full of food they'd gotten at a local pantry. The food was in cardboard boxes. Even at that age, it struck me that this single mom was wealthy compared to us. She had a car, yet she could ask for and receive free food, but we couldn't. One of the neighborhood kids came up to us, saw all the food, and asked, where were you? I had been so excited by all the groceries so neatly lined up, a rare sight in my life, that even though the food wasn't ours, I blurted, we went to the pantry and got free food. As the word food left my mouth, I felt a violent blow to my cheek and saw stars. Clotine had wheeled around and smacked me in the face as hard as she could. I was stunned. I didn't see it coming, and of course, I felt shame. I didn't understand. Well, what did I do? I shrieked, although, as I said it, my brain clicked on the explanation. My words had announced that I wished we could accept charity. I had announced it to another kid, and I had embarrassed my mom. Because we moved so often in Phoenix, I went to at least half a dozen schools in four years. In the middle of third grade, I started at yet another school. I was always small and short for my age, and I have an April birthday. So when my mom told the school office that I was in second grade because she lost track of exactly what grade I was in, they placed me in second grade. Of course, I wasn't with my mom for that conversation. If I had been, I would have spoken up and told the administrators that I was actually in third grade. I had to trail my mom often, correcting mistakes like that. Like an elf with a little broom and dustpan, I would open our mail so that we didn't lose bills, rearrange our furniture when we had furniture so that it fit in our apartment. I was used to taking care of things. But I wasn't there that day, so I couldn't speak up. Instead, I showed up for school and went to the classroom where I was told to go. My mom really didn't care about school. She didn't care if I stayed home. She didn't think about grades and never looked at my report cards. Once I turned 16, she nagged me about dropping out so I could get a full-time job and help pay rent. So it wasn't a huge surprise that she didn't know what grade I was in. I didn't realize the mistake right away. It was the middle of the school year, so it wasn't like anyone was announcing which grade we were in while we were sitting in class. But as we opened our textbooks, I recognized it. I knew I'd already gone through it. I didn't say anything until the teacher assigned us one of the homework exercises. Then I raised my hand. Miss Graham, I've already done this homework. What do you mean, said the teacher, sounding frazzled. She didn't like me interrupting. At my other school, we finished this book already. What other school? At the school I was going to before, we read this book, 
I repeated. Uh-huh, she said, and her voice sounded like an eye roll. It just looks the same. But I've already done this. I know what happens at the end, I said. Okay, she said. Well, how far did you get in this book at your other school? I flipped the pages for a while, aware of the other kid's eyes on me. I held up a page near the end and pointed. Here. Okay, let's keep going. Emily, I'll look into this later, she said. I let it drop. The next day, I arrived at my desk and sat down. Miss Graham walked over and said quietly, Emily, we're going to move you to the classroom next door. Third grade. You'll have to work really hard to catch up, she said, as if she still couldn't believe I had completed second grade. Okay, I said, suppressing the eye roll in my own voice. I stayed at that school for about three more months before we moved again. I got the last word a couple of years later. It was my last day living in Phoenix, which was also the last day that I attended school in Phoenix. The day we left Arizona for good, I was nine years old and a few weeks into the fourth grade. We're moving to Ohio today, I told my teacher. I won't be back here. I'm going to miss you. It was true. I would miss her. I had no friends because I hadn't been at the school long enough to make any. I was homeless at the time. She and her classroom were the only stable features of my life at a time when I was sleeping on the floor with my mom in a stranger's living room. That can't be right, she said. If you were leaving, don't you think I would know about it? You would, I asked. But I recognized what was happening here. I had learned by then that adults don't believe children, especially adults with power to make a difference. Your mother would have to let us know. You can't just leave school one day and never come back. Go out to recess with the other kids. That night, my mother and I stepped on a Greyhound bus. I wouldn't set foot in Arizona again for 21 years.